I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And welcome to another episode of a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Episode number eight. We're getting close to ten. That's double digits. That's like a big deal when you're a kid. I know. Is it a big deal in podcast world? I feel like it is. I mean, I'm excited about it. I am too. I feel like that means we, we're really in it. We really committed Yeah. once we hit double digits. <laughs> No I, going back. I feel pretty committed. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we spend a lot more time on this than I ever predicted that we would. That is very true. <laughs> but it's all paying off. We got a couple of shout outs on Twitter this week. A couple people tagged us in their posts saying that they were going to listen. And not not our friends. Yeah. Not people that know us. Although we love it when you guys... Who know us. Who know us tag us and share our podcast. But it's even more exciting when it's a stranger who doesn't actually, like, feel like they owe you something. Owe us something. Yeah. It feels validating. Like, we actually are telling interesting stories. I mean, I think our stories are great. I think they are, too. They're, they are very interesting to us, but it's nice to know that they're interesting to other people, too. I, I agree. And so, the episode that we're posting this week is one that we actually recorded a few weeks ago. And we're excited to finally be able to share it with you guys. It was recorded right after we went on a trip to Canada. Yes, we road tripped from New York City to Montreal with some friends for Labor Day weekend. So it's, it's been about six weeks since we recorded it. We wanted it to be fresh right when we got back. And we've been saving it till now to share it. Yeah, we had a great time. We're going to talk about a bar at the end of the episode that we went to in Canada. Since most of our bars have been in New York, that'll be a nice change of pace. Agreed. And uh, we just hope that you enjoy it. We, I already can tell, spoiler, you're going to hear some singing from Laura. From Laura. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say your name, apparently. What was I about to say? Don't hold your breath on the singing. <laughs> if you want, just go ahead and skip 30 seconds right now. You'll bypass the whole thing. <laughs> we can still be friends next week. <laughs> There'll be no problems. No skipping. <laughs> All right, guys, enjoy the episode. Okay, so this week our theme is Canada. Oh, Canada. <laughs> oh, Canada. That's all I know of their national anthem, but <laughs> I don't even know if that's right. It sounded right to me. <laughs> okay. And so we're both doing a story about Canada. Mine is kind of a downer, so I told Laura I'm going to go first because... I'd rather end on a happier note. Okay. I don't know how happy your story is, but... I mean, mine... I'm sure it's better than mine. Okay. <laughs> so, the story I'm telling is about a man named Gilbert Paul Jordan, and he was a Canadian serial killer. I was just about to say he has three names. Is he a serial killer? Oh, yeah. You know <laughs> it. You know they gotta have three names. So, he was believed to have committed what are called the alcohol murders and his moniker is that the right word mm-hmm. his moniker was the boozing barber oh my goodness i'm so into this right now yep it's pretty fucked up and it's pretty long but i tried to cut it down as much as i could because i don't have a full hour to tell the story so i got my information from both wikipedia and murderpedia all about the pedias. All about the pedias, um, including an article that was on Murderpedia called "The Boozing Barber: Canadian Serial Killer Gilbert Paul Jordan" by Sylvia Clare, and that was on a website that I think is said Sosi Birdie. Don't know if that's true. I also listened to a podcast with the greatest name ever, 
Do you have a guess? Because I think we've heard of this podcast elsewhere. Uh, I, I don't know. It's dark Poutine. What? Have you not heard of it? No. I've definitely heard of it on other podcasts I listen to, so I thought you might have. Is it all just like deep, dark Canadian stories? Yep. It's I, true crime and dark Canadian stories. I am going to go and subscribe to it's, it It was great. It's the first episode that I listened to was this episode about the serial killer, and it was so good. And it was way more extensive, obviously, than what I'm doing, because it was the whole focus of the episode. And it was episode 15. Okay. So, Gilbert Paul Jordan was born December 12th, 1931, in Vancouver, British Columbia, in Canada. And his name was Gilbert Paul Ellis, but he later changed it to, his last name to Jordan. So he still had three three names, but he later he, changed wait, it. Wait, of, of his three names, hold on, well, how was he born? Gilbert Paul Ellis, sorry. He changed Ellis instead of Gilbert? Or Elsie, actually? I, I don't know. What do we think this is? Uh, that's Elsie? probably Elsie. Elsie, but, sorry. Gilbert Paul Elsie. But, like, why wouldn't he change Gilbert? No offense to the Gilberts listening. I don't know. And I, I think it might have been Dark Poutine where they said he liked to go by Paul. Or maybe it was the article I read. Because he didn't really like the name Gilbert, so... Doesn't really make sense, but because he could have been Jordan Paul Elsie, yeah. If you like the name Jordan, so much. yeah, whatever. Anyway, so Gilbert, our good friend, mm, or not? Want, good I don't friend. want to call him a good friend. Okay, so we don't know a lot about his child, but on Dark Poutine, they said that his brother had noted that there was no kind of abuse or of any kind when they were growing up. So we don't really know why he ended up the way he was. Like he doesn't have that backgrounds that a lot of other serial killers have but according to sylvia claire's article he was an alcoholic and a high school dropout by the age of 16 and by 1952 his criminal record included theft assault car theft and harem possession so he was like clearly a troubled guy even when he was young yeah not a good not a good path no and as a fun fact he was known for drinking more than 50 ounces of vodka each day and okay. he really liked to have drunk sex. <laughs> that is a fun fact. <laughs> yeah, it's important to the story, oh, but I don't want to know those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like we should have had a warning at the top of the episode. Yeah, we probably should have. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I wanted to go over a couple of his earlier crimes, um, which both Sylvia Claire and Dark Poutine cite because it kind of shows how he ended up eventually becoming a serial killer. So in 1961, he committed a couple of crimes. The first was that he was found with a five-year-old indigenous girl in his car and was charged with abduction, but never convicted. And we don't really know what he was doing. He just had a random five-year-old in his car? Yep, yep. Then on Christmas Day that year, he was super drunk and threatened to jump off the Lionsgate Bridge, which caused traffic to stop for hours. And later, he was found in contempt of court for doing a Nazi salute in the courtroom. So, you know, a real classy guy. Yeah, I mean, some might think by the end of this episode that his bridge attempt should have happened. happened. I don't even, Agreed. I don't even know this guy, but, like, I'm just getting this vibe from you that he's going to be a terrible human. Yep. So, probably the biggest indicator of what was to come was in 1963 when he lured two women into his car, promising them drinks. 
one of the women eventually got out of the car to be sick and he took off with her purse and with the other girl who he allegedly raped. So he was charged with the rape and the theft of the purse, but only convicted for the theft. He was acquitted for the rape, I guess because of the alcohol involved. They excused it away because it was the 60s, right? So after that time, his murders began. And Jordan is linked to the deaths of eight to ten women in Vancouver between the years 1965 and 1988. And he is the first Canadian murderer known to use alcohol as a weapon. So his first known murder was in 1965 of a woman named Ivy Rose Doreen Oswald, who was a switchboard operator. So the morning after Jordan checked them into a hotel room, they found Ivy's naked body. And she was dead, and she had a blood alcohol level of 0.51. And in Sylvia Clare's article, she noted that the death death by alcohol poisoning usually occurs around 0.4 so that was like well above what that would be and to put it into even more terms the legal driving limit is 0.08 right and so she was what 0. 0.5 0. 0.51 i wonder how many drinks that is i know so dark poutine also mentions that she likely would be completely passed out before she got to 0. 0.5 i think it was like after 0. 0.3 something most human beings pass out. So it was kind of impossible for her to keep drinking to get to 0.5. Right. But her death was ruled as accidental. So she just accidentally kept drinking. Right. So basically the way he killed Ivy or allegedly killed Ivy and his other alleged victims is that once they pass out, he continued to pour alcohol down their throat, eventually killing them. That's crazy. hmm I mean, like, I've heard of alcohol poisoning, like, you know, people getting super sick from it and obviously dying from it, but I don't know. I've ne- I guess I've never thought of it as a weapon. Yeah. No, I never have either until I saw this. Oh, and it was after Ivy's death was when he decided to change his last name to Jordan. So a little suspicious is like he was trying to hide. Yeah. Maybe. I still would have changed Gilbert. Yeah, yeah, still still a weird choice. So after her death, he committed some more crimes, including lewd acts and exposing himself. But none of those charges stuck. And Dark Poutine cited one thing that was like so crazy to me. In 1969, he was charged with drunk driving twice in one day. Twice in one day. Like, and they, they were as baffled as I was. They also were like, how is that possible? So wait, you're charged with drunk driving and they just gave him a ticket? And yeah. And he just kept driving? I get That's what they, like, also couldn't figure out how that could have been possible. Don't you get arrested and they put you in the drunk tank to sober up? Or... You would think. Maybe they thought he was sober so they let him go and he... Within got drunk again. hours and got drunk again? Yeah, I don't... Twice in one day. He really loved alcohol. I mean, who doesn't? But my goodness. A a bad case of loving alcohol. Yes. So he was finally convicted of a crime and sent to jail for sexual assault in 1974 for two years. So 
like it's been like eleven years of him doing ridiculous things, mm-hmm. and now he has two years of jail time. Right. Perfect. Great. After that, he had some more crimes. Of course he did. He's a serial killer. A lot of which were sexual-based. And the Crown tried to get him labeled as a dangerous sexual offender, but he managed to beat that with his lawyers, which is unfortunate that he didn't get labeled because he was clearly a dangerous sexual offender. Very clear. So after he was paroled from jail, he was thrown back in for kidnapping and raping a woman from a local mental hospital. So, like, right after he got out for his sexual assault charges, he then went and raped a woman. I just don't understand stories like this. Mm -hmm. Like, how these people get away with things time and time again. Well, he only got 26 months for that crime because, according to Dark Poutine, they didn't take into account his past criminal record. Oh, right. Because that's not important. Not at all. It doesn't show a pattern or anything. So it makes me so angry. So at one of, at one point while he was in jail, he became a barber. That's how he ended up getting that moniker. In the 1980s, he opened a barber shop called Slocan Barber Shop. And I mean, that's a reasonable profession. I know. You just would be a barber, dude. Do your thing. But that wasn't good enough for him. No, of course not. So I could probably, like I said, go on for like a full hour about this piece of shit um but i can't so (laughs) i'm just gonna refer you guys to dark poutine because they go through all of his victims and go into a lot more detail so i'm jumping ahead to when he finally came under suspicion which he should have been the whole time right it was 1987 oh wow this is like Mm -hmm. many years later many years later so he spent the night... I mean, 1987 is a great year. It is a great year. It was the year we were both born. Yeah. It's perfect. <laughs> but not for these people in Canada. So. Right. So he spent the night of October 11th drinking with a woman at the Niagara Hotel in Vancouver. And during that time, he went out and bought more alcohol throughout the night. He left at about 6 a.m. the next day on the 12th. And at 7.40, the police received an anonymous phone call. And when they got to the hotel, they found the naked body of Vanessa Lee Buckner, who was 27. So Sylvia Clare noted in her article that Vanessa Buckner was sometimes involved in sex work, which was a commonality among some of his victims. But Wikipedia said she may not have been. And she had been known as a moderate drinker. So we know she wasn't binge drinking but when they found her body her blood alcohol level was 0.91 holy cow which is like twice what the other girl that i had mentioned i 0.91 i mean that's like insane there's no way that somebody did that on their own right i mean that's legitimately just like chugging probably two bottles probably more I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I knew how many, like, liters led to... A .91. Yeah. So to further take him down, the police started, because apparently that wasn't enough, they started to do surveillance on him. And they were luckily able to save four woman, women during that time that had blood alcohol levels ranging from .43 to .52. So wait, they're watching him bring these women in, start... That's what I don't get. I'm like, okay, that's great that you saved them, but, like, 
how long did it take for you to jump in? Because I thought you said earlier, like the one woman died at point five. Right. So I and point three is when women pass out, or you right, know, a typical person passes out. So like they let it get pretty freaking far, like pretty close to death. That's absurd. And while they were surveilling him, they got him on tape saying things like. Have a drink. Down the hatch, baby. 20 bucks if you can drink it right down. See if you're a real woman. Finish that drink. Down the hatch. Hurry. And, like, I'll give you 50 bucks if you can take it. I'll give you 10 20 $50. Ooh, I just got chills. Like, goosebumps. Yeah. It's real gross. It's, it's disgusting. And so he would get to, I guess, get them to the point where they were so drunk that they were, like, passing out and then force feed them more alcohol. Right, because you're talking about women who are, I mean, like you said, a lot of them were sex workers, so they were probably working and, you know, trying to make money. So he's Mm -hmm. offering them money to drink alcohol, which seems, in many cases, like a win. Like, oh, sure, I'll take a drink. Oh, you want me to take more and you're going to pay me? It's kind of like a weird bet game, not realizing how much you're drinking. And then, I mean, I've, I've been guilty of like, drinking and you don't realize that like hey that other shot you just ordered after you're already drunk is a really bad idea yeah right because you're drunk and you don't process your thoughts and you just keep drinking until you're you know vomiting in a taxi on the way home yeah in his case he takes advantage of their drunkness but like so these women of course are going to take the money and play right they said it's disgusting i have goosebumps yeah they said like of course, like I said, some of the women were sex workers, but a lot of the women were just vulnerable. He just really tried to find vulnerable women that he could attack. So according to Dark Poutine, first, the police decided to stop tailing him. And a couple days after that, they found Ed- Edna Shade dead in another hotel. And Jordan's fingerprints were found on a vodka bottle in the room. And so, Why would they stop surveilling him? I don't know. How could they not... If they found all these women, they saved these four women, how could they not arrest him? I, I don't know. It it boggles my mind. So, and I don't know if you're going to get to this. After he is basically drowning them in alcohol, right? Basically mm-hmm. is what he's doing. Is he then like... Oh, so yes. The implication is that he's sexually assaulting and raping them. Right. Okay. Again, that's what the, I meant. That he, he, he loves drunk sex, so he likes to have sex with women who are passed out, which is disgusting. It's awful. All around, it's awful. But this police force deserves. I don't. I don't, to I don't all understand. Be fired. I don't understand if there was some Cause this something is like, that they couldn't do, but I don't understand why they wouldn't be able to. We're not talking that long ago. Like, less than 30 years ago. So right. So, they have the technology and capability to test for DNA. They have, you mm-hmm. know, cell phone. Maybe not cell phones. But they could, like, definitely track his movements via surveillance cameras. I mean, they were surveilling and, him. Right? Like, I just don't. It's mind-boggling yeah. that they would stop that yeah. and not arrest him. Like, I, I, I agree. understand. I'm sorry. I, okay, continue. But they, they used the fingerprints that were on that vodka bottle to then link him to Buckner's death, Vanessa Buckner. So, like I noted at the top, he was linked to about 10 deaths, 
but according to Sylvia Clay's article, he was only charged in seven and only convicted of one. So what? he was convicted of Vanessa Lee Buffner's murder. He is. So are they not considering it murder because it's like accidental by alcohol and it's right. hard to prove that he is like force right feeding or drinking whatever even though it seems completely impossible for these women to have drank that much i guess it was hard to prove it except in this case where it was 0.91 and clearly there's no humanly possible way that's so like it just makes me so angry. I know. You're going to get angrier in a second. Oh, God. Jesus. <clears throat> so he received 15 years for manslaughter, but succeeded in appealing and reducing his sentence to nine years and only served six of them. Our... <sighs> yep. Oh, Canada. Uh-huh. So in 2000, he was once again charged with crimes that didn't stick. Then in 2001 or... Two, so how old is he in 2000? He's, he's, he's like old. He's 60-something. 70s, I think. I think he was in his 70s. Oh, my goodness. In 2001 or 2002, two different sources gave both of those years, he was arrested again for breach of prohibition for being in the presence of a woman while in possession of alcohol. He was found guilty and sentenced to 15 months in jail, followed by three years of probation and quote-unquote strict conditions. Yeah. Then in 2004, in August, he was arrested again in Winnipeg for violating that probation order. Oh. Because he'd been identified as binge drinking with a woman named Barb Buckley, who was taken to the hospital by her friend after her friend found her in quote-unquote bad condition. This is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then he was once again acquitted of those charges charges in 2005. And he was released. And the police issued a public warning. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thankfully, he died in 2006. Of how? Is it like a tragic? Liver. I think it was his liver. Cirrhosis of the liver? Mm -hmm. No shit. Yep. So... That is the boozing barber who used alcohol to kill women and was a real piece of shit. And I wanted to note that a lot of his victims were indigenous women because I know that's a really marginalized population and he clearly took advantage of that. And I hate that I didn't have time to go into all of their stories, but third plug for Dark Poutine, they did list all the women. So Right. Wow. He, so he is terrible. And I know that there are terrible people out there, but that police force. I know is the fact that also, he was also partly responsible for some of those women's deaths because yeah. he should have been convicted and he should have been put in jail and he definitely should have been labeled a sexual offender and maybe some of those women's lives would have been saved. I mean, besides the 10 women that he allegedly killed i guess because he wasn't only convicted for one he raped a ton of women too like i just don't understand and he kept violating parole yeah he's just a career lifelong criminal and i just don't understand how he was in and out of jail so easily and how he got so many convictions overturned it just doesn't make sense to me like one person should not be that lucky yeah i just i don't understand and i this I started reading the story, and when I was like, boozing barber, alcohol, 
murders, I was like, this is going to be so interesting. And then as I kept reading it, I was, like, getting so mad. And I was like, this piece of shit. <laughs> and this these cops that, like, didn't do anything or, like, didn't do enough. I... It just yeah. makes me so mad. I mean, it was an interesting story for sure, but yeah, it's very disheartening that... And I mean, we're talking the 2000s now, yeah. so he lived his entire life... He was born in 31. So how old is that? Yeah, so he was in his 70s. 70s. Wow. He was 75 when he died. And there are probably that many like victims somewhere. oh and he said at some point that he had sex with over 200 women in his life and i'm sure most of those were not consensual probably not they just didn't die yeah right like if that these, we know of if there these, could be other ones that they don't you're right know. if these are the women that he killed there are probably other women that you know sobered up or like after mm-hmm. you know they sex like Left, you know what I mean. Right. Got up and left and didn't die. So I'm sure there are so many more victims than what we even know are victims. That's crazy. Yep. Sorry to be such a downer. Yeah, that's a that's a bummer. Well, my story is not quite as depressing as Thank your story. God. But it is still, you know, it's a crime. There's alcohol involved, and uh, it takes place in uh, Canada, our good neighbor to the north. Woo. Okay. As I drink a Canada Dry. As I drink my Canada Dry. I almost did a story about Canada Dry, actually. Really? Yes, but then I didn't. Um, I actually chose the uh, one of the most famous beer families in Canada, the Labatt Brewing Company, or the Labatt Family. Okay. Um, so, the title of this is... The 1934 kidnapping of beer baron John Sackville Labatt. Oh. It's a kidnapping. Of a beer baron. Of a beer baron. Okay. So, John Sackville Labatt was born uh, March 10th, 1880 in London, Ontario. Not London, England. Okay. So, he grows up in a very privileged family he attends uh, very expensive private boys' schools. He then goes on to McGill University and gets a Bachelor's of Science degree. And after that, he actually comes to New York City for a small amount of time and goes to the National Brewers Academy. Okay. And Sounds fun. I know. I didn't even know that was a thing. And in 1911, he joins the family business back in Ontario and he is appointed vice president. And then in 1915, he's 35 years old. He becomes president because he's the eldest son in the family following the death of his father. Okay. So he's the president of the Labatt Brewing Company, mm-hmm. which is one of the biggest beer brewers in Canada. Okay. But we're going to fast forward to 1934. Uh, Labatt is staying in his summer home and he has to go back to his uh, office in London where he has a meeting that morning and you know whatever happens in his life he ends up leaving his summer home a little bit late and so he's kind of in a hurry to get to his meeting in London and he decides to take a shortcut that is not a very well-traveled road but he knows he can get 
to his office quicker than if he took his normal route. Right. So he takes this shortcut, and he's going down the road about 10 minutes, and this car... No, it's 1934, so it's not, like, speeding, like, NASCAR-style speeding, but it comes up the road very quickly behind him, goes past him, and continues speeding, and he thinks, well, this is kind of strange. People very rarely come down this road. Right. And then for them to be traveling so fast, that's kind of a bizarre thing. Doesn't really think much of it. However, he continues driving down the road, and all of a sudden he notices that the car is pulled over on the side of the road, and as he approaches this stopped car, three men jump out with guns and force him to stop his car. So he is... You know, like what any yeah, adult like driving would do. do. He you stops would... his car. And he gets out of the car. They um, force him out of the car. They have their guns. Um, they make him stand against the car with his arms on the hood. They don't tell him who they are. They're not masked, though, so he can see all of them. Ooh, I feel like that's not a good sign. Right. But they give him a pencil and a piece of paper and they make him write a letter to his brother so they know exactly who he is. Right. They know who his family is. And they say, we need you to write this letter. If your family does what we ask them to do, then there will be no harm to you. You'll be fine. So this is what the letter says. And they, they make him say, it says, Dear Hugh... Do as these men have instructed you to, and don't go to the police. They promise not to harm me if you negotiate with them. Your affectionate brother, John S. Labatt. Did they make him sign your affectionate brother? Yeah, I guess. Interesting. It's really interesting because they have this... Oh, hold on. I'm going ahead of myself. Okay. So then... Also, do you think whenever they say don't go to the police... Shouldn't you go to the police, though? Well, right. No one should ever do business with criminals. Right. (laughs) That's what they want you to do. So then on the back side of this note, the kidnappers write, and I'm just going to read this um, verbatim. It says, we are holding your brother John for $150,000 ransom. Go to Toronto immediately and register in the Royal Yoke Hotel. We will negotiate with you from that point. Be prepared when I get in touch with you there to furnish me with the names of two or three reliable parties who can trust to deliver the money. We advise you to keep this matter away from the police and newspapers so that we can return your brother safely. You will know me as Three-Fingered Abe. And that's, that's what they write. So, I'm going to show you this picture because they do know what the ransom note looks like. So, this is John Labatt's right. writing. And it's pretty neat. I mean, he's look at that perfect script. It's great. And then this is the kidnappers. It looks like, it looks like a kidnap note. Right. Like what you would see in like a movie. Right. It's all block letter, like um, uppercase letters. Not, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's actually pretty neat. It is pretty neat. Like, it's spaced very well. It's not, like, all sloping to one side, you know? Yeah. It looks like they took time to write that, which seems weird. 
Right. So they write this this ransom, double-sided ransom note out. Three-fingered um, Abe. Three-fingered Abe signs it, and one of the men, so there are actually four men, but three had jumped out to get him out of the car. A fourth man takes this note, gets in John Labatt's car, and drives to, like, their hometown. And he gets back there. He parks the car. He pins the ransom note to, like, the upholstery of the car and just walks away. Okay. Then he makes a phone call to Hulabat, tells him that he needs to go to such and such parking lot and his brother's car is waiting for him. So, Hugh shows up at this parking lot, finds this ransom note, and does exactly as the the ransomers have asked. He does not go to the police. I just feel like that's not a good call. He goes to the hotel and he starts trying to get together the $150,000. So $150,000 in 1934 is like the equivalent of $2.5 million today. Damn. So this is not a small ask. Like, right. He 100% was targeting one of the wealthiest families in Canada. Kidnapped him. They, they knew exactly what they were doing. Right. So... Let's talk about these men that kidnapped him. So, there's the the first man, Michael Francis McCardell. Oh, so we know who they all are. Oh, yes. Okay. So, Michael Francis McCardell, also known as Three-Fingered Abe. Does he have three fingers? no explanation why this is his nickname, except that's what everyone called him. But his he- name is not Abe, and he has more than three fingers. Well, that seems strange. <laughs> Um, then there's Jack Bannon, Albert Pagram, and Russell Knowles. And Russell Knowles is the, the, like, getaway driver. The one that drove back to London and places the note inside and calls Hugh. And that's kind of, you know, the end of that. So, the kidnappers then take Labatt. They blindfold him. Well, they really tape his eyes they put him in their car and they drive north with him. They get to a cabin that they've secured. They chain him to the bed and they're waiting to make sure that Hugh has gotten the note, that he has the money, that he's at the hotel. And they're just kind of waiting to make this exchange, the 150000 for John Labatt. However... Word starts to get out because he misses his meeting at work and then no one can find him. And, I mean, this isn't just a a nobody. Like, he's a very prominent figure in in Canada at the time. And I'm assuming not, like, a slacker. Right. You know, people wouldn't just assume he'd be MIA. Right. So people start to question, you know, where did he go? And finally Hugh has to tell people about the ransom note. And inform them that his brother has been kidnapped. And and did someone slap him and say, why didn't you go to the police? Right. Well, in 1934 in Canada, this had never happened before. There had never been such like a high-profile kidnapping. Okay. So it makes a media frenzy like no one in Ontario had seen before. All of a sudden, it is the headline of every newspaper. And so I have some pictures... So this is the London Evening Free Press. It's literally larger than the title of the paper. Yeah. It says Jay Labatt kidnapped. And 
it goes on to say gang seizes president of brewery asking payment of $150,000 ransom before giving Cap D his release. And they just start to, I mean, everyone becomes a private investigator, right? And the rumors spread and every, you know, media outlet is printing about it. It's all over the radio. And it's like, I mean... Pre-internet sleuth. Pre-internet, right? Like this Nancy Grace isn't talking about it, but if she were alive, <laughs> she would have been. So there's another one. Province-wide search for John S. Labatt continues. What happens is that everyone wants to find this man. Yeah. Like they need to find They want to be the one that right. that solves this. It goes as far like places in the United States start to pick up the story because the police police while doing their investigations, they tend to believe that the kidnappers have kidnapped him and have driven south to uh, the border and have possibly crossed into the United States. So all of a sudden, newspapers in the United States pick it up. And they don't know where he is, mm-hmm. but they are looking for him. So Plus, the police... I feel like people in the U.S. like to hear about bad things happening to rich people. I feel like that's something that they just like to... Right, we're just love a terrible story. Yeah. So the police search every farmhouse, gas station, highway junction, and wooded area, the, anywhere from the Labatt Summer Home all the way to London. They go east, west, north, south, any direction that these kidnappers might have taken him within however long you could drive. You know, this it's been a few days. They stopped. They set up multiple checkpoints to check cars, mm-hmm. and they opened up, you know... Um, what are they called? Like where people could call in and like a tip line, like a tip line. And so people were reporting, like we saw this getaway car with these drivers and then the police were investigating and it was like a false sighting. And it, it was mayhem in Ontario, mm-hmm. like London, Ontario. While this normally, I think in today's day and age, that is really dangerous because then kidnappers get really, Scared and usually the worst happened. Like, right. They're like, I, what am I going to do with this person I've kidnapped? And a lot of times it ends up in them killing the person. These kidnappers were literally just in it and for the money. They really didn't want to do this man. They weren't harm. murderers. They were not murderers. So all of this kind of scares them. And they're like, we have to get rid of this man. Like, not by killing not him. Not killing him, but we have to set him free because right. the media is too much of attention. We're never going to get to this hotel and be able to pick up this ransom without media attention. Right. So the kidnappers get cold feet. They're worried about all the attention. They tape Labatt's eyes shut again, put him back in the car, and they drive to Toronto near this hotel, about three uh, miles away from the, is it the Royal York Hotel? Is that where they told the brother to go? I forget the name. Yes, the Royal York Hotel. York Hotel. So they drop him off. They give him a dollar to get a taxi to get to the Royal York Hotel. York Hotel. And they drive away with the verbal agreement that Labatt is going to pay them $25,000 for his release. But... They taped his eyes, but he had already seen all their faces. Right. And they had just spent three days with him in a cabin. Like, what 
what did they think? I don't, I just don't understand. I know. Had they never committed a crime before? Was the, Were they like, you know what, our first attempt is going to be kidnapping some super rich baron. Well, yeah, baron. I actually read on one website and then I ended up not using it. But they had a similar plot for a different, I want to say it might have even been the Molson family. The, the, the same idea, another big brewing company they were going to kidnap like the president of that company they just wanted to kidnap brewers and it fell well at this time they're the most wealthy okay people in america this is post canada well this is during the american prohibition so canada's making a lot of money i didn't really make that connection yeah canada's making it might it's just post prohibition but canadian breweries we're doing very well in yeah. American Prohibition. So that makes sense. Yeah. So they the story's not over yet. Okay. So John Labatt gets to the Royal York Hotel. York. I keep saying Yoke, but it's York. It's okay. the Royal York Hotel. And he strolls right into the front doors. There's a lobby full of reporters and police. He walks right in, no one notices him. He walks right up to the desk. He asks for Hugh Labatt's room. Wait. All these people are there. <laughs> for because him. Because of him. And he just strolls the fuck in. And no one notices. <laughs> what? I, I know. It's crazy. But this is what everything I've read tells me. Then when Hugh emerges in the lobby and, you know, is very, very happy to see his brother, then kind of, like, chaos ensues. And, and they're then, like, oh! <laughs> right. Everyone wants to see him, interview him, find out where he's been, this, that, and the other. Again, it's the headline for many newspapers. Abductors release Labatt in Toronto. And then I bet he paid that $25,000 to his kidnappers, and they all lived, No. No. <laughs> the story actually doesn't end there. And he he does not ever pay the $25,000. I assumed he did. No. <laughs> so, like I said, there were four, four men involved in this kidnapping. Three of them get arrested and are charged for kidnapping. The man who drove the car back with the ransom note is never found. Oh. Yeah. They, like, never catch him. And the other people didn't turn him in? No. Wow. However, then as the story continues to unfold, one of the men arrested is a man named David Meisner, Mm -hmm. which shouldn't be a familiar name to you because it's not one of the names I said before. So they arrest these three men and say, you committed these crimes, and they put them on trial not knowing that one of the men they've arrested was not involved, the f- the actual fourth criminal had moved to the United States and was actually killed in like a a gang related so they just murder. Picked up a random dude. They did. So they picked up a guy and he got arrested with two of the actual criminals, and during his trial at Meisner's trial. John S. Labatt looked him in the eye and said, quote, that's the man there in the box. 
He left a picture in my mind I shall never forget. And with his testimony being so, like, on the point, like, that is 100% the man that kidnapped me, he was found guilty. And, and that went, guy was like, what the fuck? And went to jail. He, Meisner had an alibi, had a really good lawyer, and the jury still convicted him because of Labatt's testify. He like, spent three days with those people, and he misidentified somebody? Yeah. So it took all the way until 1936 when someone else came forth and pinned, like, when they when they realized that they had a mistaken identity and they figured out who the actual fourth kidnapper was. And so then Meisner was retried and he was found not guilty. And Why did he even have to be retried? <laughs> I don't know. But he later sued and settled Good. for like $5,500, which would be about $95,000 today. Good. Like the false testimony and yeah. being imprisoned. Do you, I don't know if you would know this because I don't know if you saw pictures of them at all, but did he like look like the... I don't know. He could. I'm so curious. Like maybe he had a resemblance and that's why Labatt was like, yep, that's him. That's him. His testimony was that convincing that they sent him to jail. And so these these men go to jail. Labatt is unharmed other than, you know, the psychological harm of being kidnapped. And the experience kind of turns him into a recluse for the rest of his life. He doesn't really come out much. He still runs the company. Up until his death, uh, which happens in 1952. I thought you were going to say, he still runs the company today. And I was like, how old is he? Born in 1880, 140 years old. I almost just lost my shit. You should drink that beer every day. Um, And so he dies of old age in... He's 72 years old in July of 1952, but the experience does affect his last 20 years or so. Uh, He is able to run the company, but does not venture out of his home very much because, you know, it's frightening to be kidnapped, I'm sure. I'm sure. And so there are a couple things that I found, which I think are interesting. At the Labatt Brewery, there is a room... Called the Ransom Room. Oh, so they, they like, profited off the fact uh-huh. that, that this guy got kidnapped. And I'm okay. going to read this from their website. It says, Steal away to the Ransom Room, an intimate dining space tucked away inside the draft room. The Ransom Room is available for private dinners, events, and covert hostage negotiations. <laughs> like, they... Do three men blindfold you and bring you down I there? Know. <laughs> you could, we could go with eight Just... guests. And it features a close-up look of the brewery process at the Labatt Brew House. And so if you ever find yourself... In Ontario? In Ontario, you can eat at the Ransom Room. So they, like, have profited off of this kidnapping. That's insane. Which is crazy. I wonder when they opened that. I mean, I'm sure it was after he died. I'm sure. It sounds like something they would have done probably pretty recently. Right. Oh, I lied. I take this back. Uh, I believe... It's actually located in Buffalo, New York, actually on the United States side. I think the Labatt Brew House is now also in 
the United States, they have a brewery. Oh. So this, the ransom room is in Buffalo. Okay. So we could just drive up there. It sounds like something an American would come up with. It does, right? So I used a couple different sources. One being the Lambden County Museum Archive. So they had just a lot of information about it. Uh, I used their website. Then there was a news article written uh, in June of 2007 on the Star newspaper. And it's John Labatt's 1934 Kidnapping by Adam Mayers. So he did a lot of like the more story-esque parts of the story. Uh And then there was a book published in 2004... And I did not read the whole thing because it was over... I was about to say, you read a whole book? <laughs> it was over 200 pages on just this kidnapping, which wow. only lasted two and a half days. Wow. But it is. it was very interesting, and I did, I did a kind of... Like, after reading the newspaper article, I then searched a couple of the facts to find out. So that's where I found more of, like, the, the text of the ransom note and things like that. But it's a book... If you're interested and you want to know more about it, Susan Goldenberg in 2004 wrote Snatched, The Peculiar Kidnapping of Beer Tycoon John Labatt. Cool. And so those are my sources. But I just find it really interesting that, I mean, these men really just wanted money. Yeah. I feel like this would make a good movie. It or would. like a, Or even like a mini-series. I do think it would. It'd be interesting. I feel like they could do something kind of fun with it. I'm, like, kind of thinking of... Was it FX that did Getty recently? And that was, like, about a kidnapping. So I just, like, feel... I feel like it it could be compelling in, like, a a miniseries or a movie or something. I think that would be really good. Yeah. this This is John. Ooh, who would play him? He looks a little bit like Truman. Like the President Truman. Yeah. The round glasses, I think, are what do it. Yeah. He's not alive anymore, but I feel like Gregory Peck would have been good to play him. I mean, Gregory Peck's more attractive than he is, but I don't know. I feel like he would do a good job. Yeah. So that's the story. The 1934 kidnapping of John Labatt. That was cool. I thought that was a good story. Well, this week was um, a little depressing. We've got murder and... Kidnapping? You might think this were all true crime. I know. <laughs> I feel like we usually don't both pick true crime. I usually know. one of us does, and the other one does, like, history. Sorry. Sorry. Mine's historical. Sorry. Yeah, yours was historical. And not nearly as depressing as mine. No, yours was a real downer. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, guys. But we chose the theme Canada because we actually recently went on a vacation to Canada. We drove up to Montreal for a long weekend and we had so many good drinks all over so this is you know we're going to talk about our bar cocktail of the week and we're going to talk about specifically I think at least it was my favorite bar that we went to oh yeah it was super cool so we went to a bar in Montreal Mm -hmm. called Le Lab Le Lab Le Lab where's your French (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. <laughs> I got as far as Bonjour when I was there, and I felt bad that I couldn't do more. Merci but, beaucoup. But um, Le Lab was really cool. It's a bar that I feel like I would hang out in all the time if it was where near where I lived. 
and they had really delicious drinks and some really cool, what would you call it? Like a gimmick? The... A, a trick. A trick. They had a really cool trick that they did with shots where it kind of looked like the bartender was breathing fire at us. Yes. We are going to post a video on our social media, but the bar itself is just a very cool vibe. You walk in and it very much, all the decor is kind of dark and has an old school feel to it. It very, almost has like a speakeasy Very vibe. speakeasy. But the cocktails are just handcrafted, like high-end ingredients, and they're just made very well. They don't even have to be over the top with 500 things in them. Right. They're just classic, you know, old-fashioned Manhattans. And, like, takes on all of those classic drinks. Right. So we we both had the same drink. We did. We had the maple old-fashioned. Yeah, which was really good. It was very good. But we were with some friends, and across the board, we had a wide variety of cocktails. and Everyone loved them. It was great. We had a great time. Yeah. So the bar is actually called Bar Lay Lab. I was going to say that. I was like, I think when I looked it up, it had bar in front of it. Yes. But I've always just referred to it as Le Lab. <laughs> but so if you are in Montreal, visiting Montreal, we highly recommend going to Bar Le Lab. Definitely. And that's all we've got for you this week, guys. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed our gloomy, doomy, true crimey podcast this week. And if you did, you should rate, review, and subscribe. And you can follow us on social media. We're at a tap on the wrist on both Instagram and Twitter. And our Gmail is tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. See you guys next week. Have a good week.